I'm Sabri Beneshore with Latitudes. Today's show is a global buffet. We have the latest on global food issues, why at the same time on the same planet, a billion people are hungry and a billion people are fat. And we go to Egypt to meet Ghalia Mahmoud. Before the revolution, she was a cook and a maid. Now, she's a celebrity chef. Welcome back again in this program. I have a lot of new recipes. We have uh, onion stuffed with rice. And we hear how sound can make food, and even wine, taste better. If you listen to People are Strange by the Doors whilst drinking Cabernet Sauvignon, the Cabernet Sauvignon will taste 45% more deep and voluptuous. Plenty to sample on Latitude's Global Buffet after this news. When you're strange, come out of the rain. This is Latitude's, a co-production of the Global News Partnership. WAMU 88.5 in Washington, D.C. Okay, let's see. I'm going to need some spring onions, some regular onions. Got to grab a couple more bell peppers, and I think that should do us. Hi, and welcome to our Global Buffet. I'm Sabri Beneshore. Glad you could join us on this food adventure. Right now, I'm standing in the produce aisle of a well-known grocery store, and the variety of fruits and vegetables here is truly impressive. So let's see. We have one, two, three, five types of pears here. We have a pepper from Mexico. We have an eggplant from the Netherlands. Now, looking at all of this, how can it be that we have so much abundance, but a billion people on this planet are starving, and yet more than that, a billion and a half people are obese? It's an irony on a planetary scale that is not lost on Raj Patel. Headed back to the studio to talk to him now. He's the author of a book called Stuffed and Starved. Okay. So, Raj, why this crazy imbalance? That's the system that we've set up, Sabri. I mean, the the, the world in which we live now produces more calories per person than ever before in human history, which means that if you are able to pay to eat in a supermarket, it looks like you have as many choices as you'd care to shake a stick at. But the sad fact is that we are also in a world where the way we distribute food is through the market. And when you distribute food through the market, you introduce two very simple rules. The first rule is that if you have money, then you get to eat. Even if that means the food comes from halfway around the world and out of season, if you have the cash for it, and the desire to buy it, then you can have that. Uh, But the downside is that if you don't have money, then even if the food is right in front of you, then you starve. And that's why right now where food prices are going up and up and they're reaching record levels again, we have around a billion people who are unable to eat despite the fact that we have more food than ever before per person in human history. Can you give us a sort of dummy's guide to how this global food system actually works Imagine, if you will, an hourglass, you know, something that's wide at the top and narrow in the middle and wide at the bottom. And at the top, there are millions of farmers around the world and farm workers who work every day in the fields to get us our food. And then down the other end of the hourglass, there's billions of people across the world, seven billion people who eat every day if they can. But in the middle controlling the distribution of this food are just a handful of corporations. And they operate by the rules that all corporations operate by. They buy cheap and they sell dear. And when they buy cheap, that means 
paying uh, as little as possible for inputs and really paying workers as little as possible. And that's why, if you look at the people who are going hungry today, uh, the irony is that the billion people who go hungry in the world who are uh, malnourished, they are often working in rural areas. They're farm workers or they're, sometimes they're displaced farm workers, they're refugees. And at the other end of the food system, because the profit motive runs all the way through from farm to fork, uh, the, the, there's a lot of motivation and incentive to sell things that human bodies are wired to crave, things that are rich in salt and fat and sugar. And that means selling us food that, that is more likely than not to make us overweight. So food that involves a great deal of processing and that is therefore much more profitable than food that, that uh, can easily be plucked out of the ground and eaten raw. So it sounds like you're saying there's a total misalignment between profit, the market, and human health. We often get told that people who eat fast food are, are dupes, that they are fools for compromising their health by eating junk, and instead what they should be doing is going home and cooking pulses and beans and eating kale. But that ends up blaming the victim, because if you look in areas where fast food is readily available, that's often in areas where fresh fruits and vegetables are not available. It's often also in areas where people are time poor. So uh, if, if you're trying to hold down two jobs so that you can you know, hang on to whatever looks like basic health care, and you're trying to make the rent or pay, make a mortgage payment, and you're running from one place to another, and you have to pick up the kids, then the only time that many people can find to eat a meal is off their lap. And when you have that sort of a situation, then that's a situation in which fast food becomes a natural way of eating rather than the sort of strange phenomenon that, that we ought rightly to regard it as being. Raj Patel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Fast food is partly responsible for the explosion of diabetes and other health problems we see, but that doesn't stop it from being one of our most popular exports. You can find golden arches from Paris to Pakistan. And one country poised to experience the American fast food diet for the first time is Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. International sanctions have been lifted following major political reforms and the countries opening up economically. But any fast food chain that wants to take a bite out of this new market will have some local competition. Becky Palmstrom checks out food on the go, Burmese style. Here in downtown Yangon, we're surrounded by old colonial buildings. Women stand on the cracked pavement selling papaya salad, bean pancakes and deep fried insects. We're in a tea shop on a typical monsoon afternoon. I'm sitting with Utin Ong, who runs one of the best restaurants in town. Myanmar, really Myanmar taste is Myanmar like spicy food. If they have chili and they have a salt, they can eat, they, have, they can finish their lunch. So, shoot on the way. Utin Ong is ordering for us. Shoot on the way. I'm just about to eat some of this tea leaf salad, and it looks delicious. It's got a little bit of chili on the outside. Sesame seeds and dried shrimp and fermented tea leaves. Mm. One spoon of uh, tea leaves are left and one bite of chili. It will make you perfect. 
My next stop is Sharkey's. Myanmar is settled between the two countries, China and India, so there's a crossover culture, so the, it's, ne- it's neither Indian or Chinese. Uh, it is a mixture of both. Sharkey's runs an organic restaurant and grocery store. He says the poor roads and lack of refrigerators mean most food eaten in Yangon comes from within a 30-mile radius of the city. Now that Western companies can come in, Sharkey's worries that traditional tea shops will be no match for Big Macs and Coca-Cola. We can learn a lot from the Western countries, but not everything is good. We should keep certain parts of elements that are uniquely Myanmar and live with that. But some people already have a taste for Western fast food. Over samosas and condensed milk tea, my friend Ma Sander Nguyen tells me she used to smuggle it in from Thailand for her boss's son. Every time he asks for whoever go to abroad, oh, please bring KFC for me. So, in a way, Burmese people are really dreaming about uh, snack food, especially like at McDonald's or KFC. One thing traditional Myanmar street food certainly has going for it is its price. Back at our tea shop, I pay for four large plates of food and three cups of tea. It costs about $4, less than the price of one McDonald's Happy Meal. For Latitudes in Yangon, I'm Becky Palmstall. My name is Delaney McConnell. I'm working at Aito Hotel in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The best of macchiato in the world. You are listening to La Deteuse. Ghalia Mahmoud labored for years as a cook and a maid to an upper-class Egyptian family. But the upheaval after the Egyptian revolution catapulted her to national fame as a celebrity chef. Now the feisty 33-year-old Ghalia is known as much for the advice she dishes out to callers as she is for her recipes. Her show is broadcast on TV25. It's a channel named for January 25th. That's the day former President Mubarak fell from power. Dale Gavlak caught up with Ghalia and Mohammed Gohar, the TV exec who discovered her, in Cairo. Welcome back again in this program. I have a lot of new recipes. We have uh, onion stuffed with rice. And it's very, very cheap. And you can, all the people, all the levels, you can buy it. Before the revolution, I was a normal woman. No one knows me. But after the revolution, everything changed, and I changed with the revolution also. Before the revolution, the government or the media doesn't focus on the poor people. They focus on the famous people, the rich people. But after the revolution, the poor people now have a voice. Muhammad Gohar in 25 channel, he knows me and he came and he takes me to this channel. And now I'm become a sample for the Egyptian revolution. TV 25 started the day Mubarak went down. We bring from Tahrir Square. We bring also musicians, comedians, whoever did a positive thing and believe in peaceful revolution. He's on 25 now. So why not Ghalia? 
Ghalia is a feminist because she presents the real Egyptian hard-working poor woman. She is ready to change her surrounding to the better. And she gives hope for everyone. When you pull out the inside of the onions, it reminds us to pull out every bad things inside us if I have a bad point of view against some people. I should throw it out. In my program, I'm not focusing only on cooking. I tried hard to put some advices for people. For example, we ask people to take care of the stepmothers and to forgive others. They should treat their husbands well and don't spend a lot of money and to prepare a good recipe. Hello! If you want to count the, the fans, I think there's more than one million fans. Opera Egypt. Yeah, they call me uh, Opera Egypt. <laughs> Coming up, we'll hear how a veteran from Iraq and Afghanistan turned to growing things, to farming, to help him deal with PTSD and life after war. That's next on The Global Buffet from Latitudes. This is The Global Buffet on Latitudes. I'm Sabri Beneshore. Food has the ability to comfort, sometimes just because it tastes great. Sometimes it's about remembering, bringing back memories from childhood, maybe something your mom used to fix you as a special treat. And for some, food is about forgetting and about moving on. Alexander Sutton is a farmer and a war vet. He joined the military straight out of high school, spent 13 years as a sniper in Iraq and Afghanistan, and in 2007, his legs were blown off by a roadside bomb. He walks on titanium legs now and takes more than 15 medications for post-traumatic stress. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, one veteran commits suicide every 80 minutes. But for Alexander Sutton, farming is helping him move forward, one step at a time. Alex Blair has his story. Good morning, USA. Good morning. My name is Alexander Sutton. This is my lovely wife-to-be, Jessica Silberhorn. We are the proud owners and operators of Sutton Heritage Farms. Alex may not have his own legs, but he is still strong, tall, and broad. He can hoist a small woman like me up on his shoulders in one swoop, as if I were no more than a sack of chicken feed. He and Jessica live in the small town of Jackson Springs, North Carolina was pretty much love at first sight. <laughs> Jessica says they met when he answered her call on Craigslist, looking for someone to go fishing with. Alex replied, and we went fishing, and that's all she wrote. <laughs> we, we pretty much had decided at the end of that day that uh, we were going to date, and then uh, after a while, about six months of dating, we decided that we probably wanted to spend the rest of our lives together. Started looking for a place out, I think. And they found a place, a home for themselves and their animals. Dozens of birds wander around the front yard. You have to step carefully around them and keep an eye out for the odd, angry goose. Their farm specialty is heritage poultry, chickens with strange names. 
We have Bardrocks, Delawares, um, Dominiquers, Gold Campaign, Silver Sea Brides. They also have quails and ducks and turkeys. They have pigs and goats and horses and dogs and sometimes cows. Blue silkies, white silkies, black silkies, buff silkies. They also grow a bit of corn and soybeans. For now, they just sell the eggs and birds out of their home. It's nothing like his old job. When I was military, all I did was deal death. I mean, that's all I did was kill. There was nothing else to it. There was no taking prisoners. There was no taking hostages. There was no intel. It was just death and destruction. And it bothered me. It did. It really did, but I never let it because it was mission. I didn't have time to feel sad. I didn't have time to feel remorse. But of course, after the military... Alex did have time to feel, and to think about what came next, how to fill the rest of his life. If you spend, like me, I spent 13 years killing people. What am I supposed to do in the civilian world? I fall back to my roots, and I come from a small, rural community up in Iowa, and I'm a country boy. <laughs> Alex is a really special veteran. His experience was as extreme and as intense and as lengthy as anybody that had served. That's Michael O'Gorman. He's the founder of the Farmer Veteran Coalition, a nonprofit based in California that works nationally with returning soldiers who want to get into farming. Michael says farming and soldiering have a lot in common. They're both outdoor physical jobs. But not only that, farming offers something else that resonates with veterans. People talk about all farming, how healing that must be. The real secret to the healing is that they're needed. That's true for Alex. He says that his animals are like his soldiers. He feels responsible for their lives. They make him get up in the morning, even if he doesn't want to. I just want to be able to give back. You know, for my, my whole life, I, since I was 17, I've been in the military, and all I've been doing is serving my country. And just because I'm hurt doesn't mean I want to stop doing that. It's just I have to figure out a different way to do it. When I've spent time with Alex, I've seen him collapse, falling because his legs couldn't hold him. He had worked too hard. He can shut down for days at a time after he talks about his war experience in detail. Perhaps he'll carry his PTSD for the rest of his life. Even so, his story is one of possibility. That those who have lived through the worst and most awful parts of war don't have to feel like there's nothing else left for them. Well, you know, pain is temporary. Pride is forever. Of course it hurts. And it hurts my body every friggin' day that I push it out here. But you know what? It's that pride. It's worth it all just to see that one little sprout come out of the ground or to see one, that one little baby chip its way out of the shell. You know, it's worth every ounce of pain. Alex sees his work as a kind of penance. He feels he's paying a debt, making up for the lives he took and the lives he brings into the world now, and showing that even though life in the military is over, a life of meaning and service is not. For Latitudes, I'm Alex Blair in Jackson Springs, North Carolina. <laughs> Producer Alex Blair is currently working on a documentary film about Alexander Sutton and other farmer veterans. The documentary is being produced by Vittles Films and will be released in 2013. You can learn more about the film on their website, vittles.us, and you can find them through our website, latitudesradio.org. 
Now, what is a show about food without a food fight? But I'm not talking about the lunchroom kind. I'm talking about something a little more touchy. Actually, a lot more touchy. For example, both Palestinians and Israelis claim the pearly round couscous as their own and are not happy to share ownership. And earlier this year, a row broke out between Austria and Slovenia about who invented the regional pork sausage called the Kreiner. And culinary tensions are evident, too, in the divided Mediterranean island of Cyprus. Greek and Turkish Cypriots have split the island in half, literally. And while they're no longer in a civil war, the fight still simmers over cheese. Jacob Resnick explains. It's hard to explain the reverence that Cypriots hold for their national cheese. Halloumi, as the Greek Cypriots call it, or Halim to the Turkish Cypriots. But spend some time on a farm here and you begin to get the idea. In Cyprus, we don't make some other cheese from this milk. Only halloum. It's the tradition. It's, the, it's the, our life. That's Panayotis Constantino, a Greek Cypriot who's a third-generation dairyman. Halloumi was invented more than a thousand years ago as a way to make a non-perishable food out of sheep and goat's milk on this hot, arid island. It has an almost plastic consistency that squeaks as you chew. It's salty without being overpowering, and it strikes that perfect balance between creamy and savory. As Turkish Cypriot Manifer Satorolo says, it goes with every meal. And you can grill it, you can fry it, you can shred it, you can eat it as fresh. There are a lot of applications about using it. It is not just a cheese for breakfast. Halloumi is the island's most lucrative export. It brought in roughly $73 million last year. So farmers like Constantino want to make sure products called halloumi or halim come only from Cyprus. The milk they make in the other country, the taste of the milk, it is very different from Cyprus. That is the difference to cheese halloumi from Cyprus or halloumi from Bulgaria or Romania. But even though Greek and Turkish Cypriots make this cheese, the industry is as divided as the island. Cyprus became independent in 1960 after nearly a century of British colonial rule. In 1974, the Turkish military invaded and established the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. After that, most Greek Cypriots moved to the south and most Turkish Cypriots moved north. 84-year-old Veli Tekker says the bitterness lingers on. It is not good to live together because we suffer too much. They stole our rights by force. There was a referendum on unification in 2004, but it failed. The Turkish Cypriots supported it, but the Greek Cypriots did not. Relations have been cool ever since. Today, the city of Nicosia is the last divided capital in the world. In the northern part, workers package halloumi at Co-op Sut, the Turkish Cypriots' largest cheese plant. Most exports are bound for Turkey and the Middle East, but business could be better. In 1994, a European court set up a trade embargo against the Turkish Cypriots, ruling that North Cyprus is under illegal occupation. Turkish Cypriots say the trade embargo has kept the Northern Republic poor. They've tried to strike a deal with their Greek-speaking counterparts to protect the Halloumi name for all of Cyprus. That way, both sides could share the wealth. Aaron Urgen is a North Cyprus official who sat in on the negotiations. He says Halloumi is one thing both sides have in common. It's a cultural product. When you go to Turkey, you eat white cheese. When you go to Greece, you eat feta. So for us, we use these products in the morning for the lunch, 
over the dinner before we go to bed. I mean, it's it's one of the products that symbolize our cultural identity. But the talks went nowhere. Some Greek Cypriots even questioned the Turkish Cypriots' right to produce the cheese in the first place. Some people might not be able to tell the difference, but Michael Petro, marketing director for one of the largest producers in the South, says the Greek Cypriot halloumi and the Turkish Cypriot halim just aren't comparable. Halim is something different with halloumi cheese. Halloumi cheese is the special cheese original from Cyprus, but halim is something different. For Turkish Cypriots like Erhan Urgen, the impasse is over more than cheese. The problem is that Greek Cypriots do not want to share this country with us. Either the Helim or the governance, it's the same issue. As it stands today, Cyprus still doesn't have claim to either name, Halim or Halloumi. In the meantime, a German firm has copyrighted the name Halim to sell in Europe. For Latitudes, I'm Jacob Resnick in Nicosia, Cyprus. So I think we all know there's a relationship between food and smell. Like when you have a cold, stuff doesn't taste as good. And sometimes that smell of baking cookies takes you back to that first grade birthday party. But food and sound? Russell Jones says there's a direct connection between those two senses as well. He's the creative director of Condiment Junkie, a sonic branding company that helps companies make products that don't just look good, they make them sound good too. Welcome, Russell. Hello. How you doing? So how are my ears and my tongue connected? How could sound and taste be connected? Well, there's a few ways that they work. For instance, colour, we understand, influences uh, our taste buds in a way. If something's brighter coloured, a fruit, we would believe that to be fresher and it's going to taste better. And that will probably trick our taste buds into thinking it does actually taste better. The idea that sound affects it has been something that no-one's really thought about. So we've discovered that there's actually a neuropsychological link between the senses. If you change the sound that you're listening to when you're eating something, it will taste different. It's sort of a backdoor to our other senses by kind of hitchhiking on the connection that all of our senses share somehow? Yeah, absolutely. It is like that. It's like they're all linked. So if we find the right thing, the right sound, the right instrument, the right tone that's specifically linked to the taste of something, that's the taste of sweet then we can affect that taste. We can influence how you perceive it. All right, well, let's try this out. Let's take a listen to some of these sounds that you all have developed. Okay. Okay, so they're, they're going to play a sound. Don't tell me what it is, and I will try and okay. guess. <laughs> um, what are my options again? Is it bitter or is it sweet? Um... I mean, I'll go with bitter. Okay. Well, you're correct. Really? <laughs> yeah. Bitter is, as you just heard, it's low. It's kind of brassy. It's legato. It's very slow. Well, what does a sweet sound taste like? Or what does a sweet taste sound like? <laughs> when people were asked to choose a sound that resonated with a sweet taste in their mouth, they always chose sounds that were higher pitched consonant, as in, you know, in key with each other, and more percussive instruments like bells or pianos. 
So I have some coffee here, and I really want to try this out, actually, to see how it works. Well, the best thing to do would be to have a sip of the coffee, experience the taste sensation that's in your mouth then, and then we'll trigger one of the sounds. Have a think about what happens in your mouth, where the flavour is in your mouth, and then play the other sound immediately after it. All right, so here we go. <laughs> Anything? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's completely a placebo effect or I've yeah. you've somehow hypnotized me, but I feel like I could I do think I could actually feel the focus of my taste moving from the back of my tongue to the front of the tongue. Right, that's really interesting. That was one of the things we discovered that we never thought we'd discover. <laughs> it really... See, I didn't say anything about it moving from front to back, and that's, um, that is what, what loads of people have reported, which is really interesting to us. How did you actually do this experiment originally? Well, the original experiment was done in what's called the Cross-Modal Laboratory at Oxford University, and it's done a lot more blind. So people sit in a dark room, and a hand comes in from the side and hands them a piece of food and they have their headphones on, and it will already be playing one of the two sounds. And they eat the piece of food, and then on a computer in front of them it pops up. And they just, on sliding scales, have to judge their pleasure, enjoyment, you know, where in the mouth the flavour sensation was, the taste sensation was, and how bitter it was, how sweet it was. And then the new sound comes on, and the arm comes through again and hands them another piece of food, and they judge that. But what they don't know is that they're given exactly the same piece of food each time. So the subjects that we did the experiment on actually thought they were eating two different things, but eat, but it was exactly the same thing, it's just the sound was different. I mean, do you think that this works for music, like Edith Piaf at a French restaurant is going to influence how yeah. we like the beef bourguignon? Absolutely. That's a lot to do with sort of atmosphere and memory, uh, but it's been shown that if you listen to French music when you're eating French food, it'll taste more authentic and you'll get more enjoyment from it. And that works with everything. Wine's a really fascinating one. There's been uh, loads of studies that says if you listen to music that echoes how the wine tastes, then it can increase those properties by around 45%. So, for instance, if, you listen, if you're drinking a Chablis and you listen to music that's light and zingy, something in a high register that's light and upbeat, then the Chablis will taste 45% more citrusy and zingy and upbeat. <laughs> and if you listen to People of Strange by The Doors, whilst drinking Cabernet Sauvignon, the Cabernet Sauvignon will taste 45% more deep and voluptuous. <laughs> Is anyone using this idea now? There's a restaurant called The Fat Duck uh, in England in a little village called Bray, just outside London, owned by chef Heston Blumenthal. And Fat Duck was voted for years and years best restaurant in the world, and it's an amazing experience. It's, it's one when it's just a sensory onslaught. And there they have a signature dish, called Sounds of the Sea. And this is uh, a dish of sashimi and edible sand, which is actual tapioca. And you get served a seashell with an iPod in it, and you listen to this uh, Sounds of the Sea soundscape that we at Condiment Junkie designed. Has anyone suggested that this could make our eating habits healthier? I mean, will any music make lima beans taste better? <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> um, a good application for this, especially understanding now that we can make sweet foods taste sweeter by playing a sound, is that, yeah, hopefully we can use that as a form uh, of influencing design so we can reduce the amount of sugar in sugary foods like fizzy drinks and chocolate bars. How that's delivered 
it's still up in the air, but it doesn't have to be that you listen to this sound on a pair of headphones whilst you're eating or drinking a fizzy drink. We now understand the frequencies that make something taste sweeter, so we can instil those frequencies in other aspects of it, in the wrapping, or if you open a can of drink, the ch sound as you open it, priming people for a sweet experience. Well, I guess I'll be uh, listening a little more carefully next time I open my soda. Russell Jones is the creative director of the sonic branding company Condiment Junkie. You can find out more about them and see pictures of some of their sonic food experiments on our website, latitudesradio.org. Coming up, food deserts and desserts. Stay with us. Welcome back to Latitudes. I'm Sabri Beneshore, and I am at D.C. Central Kitchen, where there are giant kettles of boiling stew, and teams are chopping up chickens. Uh, and I'm here with Brian McNair, who's the chief development officer here. Tell us a little bit about uh, what's cooking. So it looks like today we're doing a chicken and potato stew. As you can see, there's some fresh fennel in front of us. There's also some really nice bright purple eggplant. These kettles serve 2,600 meals mostly to all the city shelters. A salad goes out with a hot meal every single day. And tell me, where does this food, these eggplants, this fennel, where does the food come from? Well, a lot of the eggplant um, and fennel you see here right now comes from local farms because we've made a really strong move toward purchasing local. Quite frankly, it was to support local farmers, but mostly to save money. There's an incredible amount of produce being wasted on our farms locally because they don't have the transportation to really get it to where it it needs. It's all about distribution. There's basil here that smells beautiful. We've just stepped into a massive uh, freezer here at the kitchen. This might be stuff that we either got donated or, or got very inexpensively from Shenandoah Valley. You know, not perfectly formed or not maybe the right size for sales in the supermarket, but beautiful stuff. So Brian says they're saving these not-quite-perfect-looking veggies from getting plowed under as compost. In fact, the Natural Resources Defense Council says we waste 40% of our food in this country. On average, that means every household wastes more than $2,000 worth of food every year. Think about restaurant leftovers, your leftovers, the things your kids refuse to eat, plus all the produce that grocery stores have to throw out because it goes bad. The great irony here is that there are places where they would love to have that produce. They're called food deserts, places where there are no grocery stores. So D.C. Central Kitchen tries to get food into these neighborhoods with its Healthy Corners program. I'm with one of their drivers now, and we've got green peppers, peaches, grapes, and trail mix in the trunk. It's me, Healthy Corners. Good morning. Good morning. How was your holiday? Great. I'm Deborah Smith. I am the case manager at Milestone Place. Milestone is a residence for those who have been homeless, and they stay here until they can get permanent housing. Debbie, can you tell me why you participate in this program, why you bring these items here? Well, first of all, it's not a place close by. Transportation is an issue. We don't even have a lot of small stores. They don't have a lot of fresh produce. At the corner store sometimes, 
Is it actually cheaper to maybe buy that bag of potato chips than? Sure, sure it is. And, you know, and that's what you're trying to change. This is this is better for you. But you can't always say, you know, eat this because it's better for you. Just say, try it. You know, I've cooked it this way. I've had it this way. And, you know, try this for a snack. It does not work to tell somebody that, you know, you're doing it all wrong. Because they say, I, you know, I've lived this many years and I'm doing pretty okay. You have to uh, let them see that they are doing something right. And just like people used to cook greens. They cook them forever, which is not good. But they would drink the liquid that they were cooked in. And so you have to tell them you were drinking all the nutrients. You let them know that beans that people used to eat a long time ago are wonderful for you. But that used to be a poor man's dish because a lot of poor people were eating pretty well when they had their own gardens. So you have to be careful how you approach people with, with trying to get them to change behaviors. So at this point, let's get back to Raj Patel, who we met at the start of the show. Raj is the author of the book Stuffed and Starved. Raj, you've written a lot about making food systems local. What do you think of this effort by D.C. Central Kitchen? I think that the work that D.C. Central Kitchen is doing is absolutely incredible. It's vital. And they're really sort of leading the way in pioneering innovative solutions to to, to, to fighting hunger. But I mean, I, I have a sort of deep problem with food banks, which is that I don't think they should exist. I think that, that it's an indictment of our society that we should have food banks in any way at all. Now, of course, the D.C. Central Kitchen isn't just a food bank. I know they're doing other things, uh, particularly through youth training, for example. Uh, but I think that, that that's much more the, the, what we should be thinking about in terms of if we are serious about things like eradicating hunger, then absolutely what we need to do is find communities that are underserved, uh, that have poor access to uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and come up with new and exciting and imaginative ways of meeting that need. But we should also understand that the reason most people in the United States go hungry is not because there isn't a Walmart in their community selling them organic vegetables. It's because of poverty. That's why nearly 50 million Americans are uh, food insecure at the moment. It's not because of a, a deficit of, of kale. It's because of a deficit of money. And if we're, to, if we're serious about fighting hunger uh, in inner cities or anywhere else, uh, we need to be thinking much more about fighting poverty. And that's, that's something that doesn't seem to be on the agenda as much as, much as it should be. Developing regional markets, uh, eating local... Does that address poverty and hunger? No. I, I mean, it, I think this, this is one of the, the issues around um, the eat local movement that uh, when people say, well, you know, the people who eat locally are just snobs. While unkind, there's a sliver of truth, truth to that if one thinks that people who are advocating eating locally, as I do, are only saying it, it, merely what we have to do is eat eat sort of local kale. You know, the kale is grown just round the corner. There's, there's something fantastic about this kale. If we all eat this kale, everything will be fine. Of course, that's nonsense. Um, but, if, but I certainly think that eating locally and uh, actually addressing poverty head-on rather than using the food system to do it, uh, I think that's a, 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 a way that we can tackle issues around poverty, around hunger, around inequality, uh, and certainly around some of the diet-related disease that we're also seeing. You have all these issues with the food system as we know it, but what are some of the solutions or the alternatives to it? I mean, you're not, I presume, recommending we go back to the barter system, of course. You know, what is an alternative? 
Well, the, the, the good news is that there are thousands of experiments around the world looking at precisely how it is that we might eat better tomorrow. For example, in Central America, there's something called campesino a campesino, a farmer to farmer, where, or peasant to peasant, where uh, farmers will share you know, knowledge about what seeds work together and you know, what sort of microclimates are good for producing greatest yield. And uh, these kinds of ideas uh, which, in, in which a government plays a role, but it plays a role as a facilitator, not as a dictator, as it were, and in which markets are, are, are available, but they're not dominated by any one supplier or, or one buyer. These kinds of situations, I think, we already know about. Um, in Belo Horizonte, for example, in Brazil, there are a, a range of ideas just like this, where you know, it involves farmers' markets, it involves posting notices of, of what the local prices are in, in, you know, and circulating these prices in, you know, on TV, on the radio, and putting them up in bus shelters so people know uh, where the, to, to go for the, for, the, you know, for the best priced food. You have sort of community kitchens that provide really good cheap meals uh, that are sort of cooked on, spot, uh, on the spot, and they, you know, they, they tend to be very healthy and, uh, and uh, made with fresh produce uh, and affordable to all. And by having government in a position of in, uh, an enabler and uh, by keeping markets uh, working well so so that markets are not dominated by uh, a few large corporations or skewed in in favor of one organization or another you can create these robust healthy uh, communities um, uh, cities where everyone moves towards being able to eat properly uh, and if you combine that sort of approach to the food system with a, a, an idea of fighting poverty very directly uh, you get to a world where all of a sudden uh, hunger starts starts to be something that's a, a merely a bad memory raj patel thank you so much for joining us today sabri it's been a pleasure thank you for a while all we did was smile we laughed at our mistakes, eating cake to our heart's delight. But tonight, you've lost your appetite, and someone's gotta pay. But please take my advice, don't throw this away, don't you throw it away. If you do, it's you so, food and poverty, food and nationalism, food and sound. How about food and nuclear weapons? Why not? And for this, we go to Iran. Much of the world suspects Iran is trying to develop nuclear weapons. Iran says it's just looking for energy. But regardless, that fight is landing in the kitchen. Sanctions have driven up the cost of food, and that's led to protests. When the price of chicken went up, the Iranian chief of police directed state television not to broadcast footage of chicken dinners to avoid provoking public unrest. But rising prices have not stopped Iranians from picnicking. Latitude's Andrea Wenzel went to Iran recently as a tourist and got to see what was on the picnic blankets in Esfahan's Imam Square. A woman sitting in the grass beckons me. She's prepared a plateful of mixed nuts for me to try. Hazelnuts, cashews, pistachios seasoned with saffron. I'd kind of expected this. Iranians are famous for their picnics and their hospitality. Welcome to Islam. <laughs> Still, coming from the land of the great Satan, I hadn't expected the welcome to be quite so warm. America, best country in the world. <laughs> 
The novelty of American tourists elicits emotional, even intimate confessions from other people in the park. A woman in her 50s says the secret to her youthful appearance is her divorce. A young man complains about the challenges of dating here. Meanwhile, at the market, the talk is of fruit. Apricots, melons, pomegranates, plums, fresh white mulberries. Iranians cherish their fruit. They write poetry about it. One vendor even serenades his cherries. But not everybody's happy about the price of fruit these days. The late Ayatollah Khomeini once said the Islamic Revolution in 1979 was not about the price of watermelons. But the price of watermelons is an issue these days. Because of inflation, they cost a thousand times what they did in Khomeini's day. In fact, the cost of living in general is starting to pinch, and more sanctions will only make it worse. Still, you can't have an Iranian picnic without fruit or ice cream. Like Americans, Iranians love their ice cream. In the ancient city of Shiraz, a man who says he's a fan of Barack Obama serves up sticky, sweet faluda, icy vermicelli noodles mixed with rose water and ice cream. I devour it. But then there was the ice cream I didn't have. In Tehran, at the top of Milad Tower, there's a VIP restaurant that sits 1,400 feet above the city sprawl. Not too long ago, Iran's ultra-elite could go there and order ice cream sprinkled with edible flecks of gold. It sold for several hundred dollars a dish. But that was before the supreme leader declared the golden scoops to be haram, that is, forbidden under Islamic law. Back on the ground, I find golden ice cream in a more accessible form, the tried-and-true traditional stuff colored with saffron. As I bite into it, I say a silent thanks. So far, neither the Iranian regime nor U.S. sanctions have found fault with this melty delight. Ice cream diplomacy, anyone? For Latitudes, I'm Andrea Wenzel, Esfahan, Iran. Bon appétit! Mouche John. Tuck in. Tadakimasu. Buen provecho. Guten appétit. Si on y si, on gadon fai. Gelato al cioccolato, dolce un po' salato. Tu gelato al cioccolato. Un bacio al cioccolato, io te l'ho rubato. Tu gelato al cioccolato. We're coming up on the end of the show, so a little dessert and a reminder that food has been traveling as long as people have. Long before McDonald's arrived in Manila or Kentucky Fried Chicken in Cairo, take cake. You could say it has a richly layered history. Reporter Dara J. Desta brings us this chapter in the grand story of cake. You can almost see the Pentagon from Dama Cafe in Arlington, Virginia. But when you walk inside around lunchtime, you could be in a cafe in Addis Ababa. It's crowded. Ethiopians sit around small tables, talking and enjoying a taste of home. My home. How are you guys? Fine. <laughs> what are you eating? Uh, I'm having macchiato and uh, fruitcake. Ethiopia did not get macchiato and cappuccino from Starbucks. 
they have been there since the Italian occupation in the 1930s. The Italians were only in Ethiopia for five years, but in that short time, they left behind many good things, like espresso, macchiato, cakes, and ideas for how to enjoy them. Samson says he comes to Dama Cafe two or three times a week. It pretty much reminds me of uh, my childhood, you know, growing up. We used to go to pastry shops with my parents, and that tradition pretty much continued here again. I bring my kids, and they love the cake. So it's a wonderful place. I share his nostalgia. When I was a teenager, we would go to Enrico Pastry in Addis Ababa to buy a cake. It's a place opened by an Italian about 50 years ago. Then we would go to the piazza with our girlfriends. We would tell them, you are as sweet as this cake. I think we got this idea from the Italians too. Uh, now we are at the bakery. We have like 21 different kinds of cakes, pastries, the cookies. Almaz but is a famous pastry chef in the Washington, D.C. Ethiopian community. She says Damas cakes are a product of globalization. But Almaz thinks the borrowing works both ways. I think, I think bread was first made in Ethiopia. Almaz can't prove it. But she thinks travelers from other countries were inspired by Ethiopia's kita bread. The same kita goes to Middle East. They put yeast and they call it pita. The same thing, flour, water, and salt goes to France. They put yeast and butter, they call it croissant. Baking runs in Alma's family. Back in Ethiopia, her father, the late Damana Demo, baked bread for the Ethiopian Air Force. Then her brother started a bakery with cakes and donuts. Well, it mixed it up maybe one or two minutes. When Almas came to the U.S., she studied nutrition at Howard University. This gave her new ideas, like cakes for diabetics and cakes that are gluten-free. And she even started making vegan cakes, because Ethiopian Orthodox Christians have to abstain from animal products for about 200 days of the year. Most of our customers are Ethiopian, so we have to adjust the cakes, the cookies, and all the pastries to our own taste. This is the, the mix of egg and flour. This means less sugar and less cream. And sometimes her exclusive pastry menu also includes teff, a slightly sour-tasting flour we use to make our injera bread. But the way Ethiopians in America eat cake has been changing. Cake is now a normal thing for many special occasions, like birthday parties. I know when my kids hear the birthday song in English or Amharic, they expect to see cake. For them, it's not a luxury item like it was when I was a teenager. Here in the diaspora, they are part of a new chapter in the history of cake. Almaz will no doubt be adapting new recipes for them. For Latitudes, I'm the Regidista in Arlington, Virginia. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Yes, I love cake. I'm about to taste the cake. Mm. I'm sorry, I just couldn't listen to that and not try some of this stuff. Wow. Well, oh my God, there's another kind of cake here too. Um, you can take a peek at the cake yourself on our website. Check out latitudesradio.org. And while you're there, we have some other sweet treats of Italian origin. You can take a trip to the University of Gelato. Gelato has got to be dense, uh, it's got to be smooth, uh, creamy. You can find even more goodies at latitudesradio.org, including our podcast and a place to share your ideas with us. So stop by. 
That's it for our global buffet today. Latitudes is produced by WAMU 88.5 in Washington, D.C., and the Global News Partnership with support from the Park Foundation. Our production team includes Beverly Abel, Lita Hartman, and Andrea Wenzel. Keith Weston is our audio engineer. Our theme music is composed by Plush Interiors. I'm Sabri Benishore, and thanks for joining us.